0: Well, many of you know that as you read through your Old Testament, that you will find over and over again promises that God makes specifically to the nation of Israel about a future kingdom where one day there would be a kingdom under the rule, the sovereign reign of their Messiah, and that this kingdom would be centered capitaled in the city of God, which of course is the city of Jerusalem. And These promises are not one or two scattered here or there that you might interpret in some other way, but they are multiplied promises over and over again of this coming kingdom. You'll find these promises in such Old Testament prophets as Isaiah and Daniel, Ezekiel, Habakkuk, if you ever read Habakkuk, and I highly recommend it if you don't. Micah is another one. In these and other books of the Bible, you find these prophets talking about this kingdom, and they're not using vague or obscure language, but they're using very meticulously detailed language to describe what this kingdom will be like. In fact, when the angel Gabriel, the angel of the Lord, came to Mary in Nazareth and announced to her that she would conceive and bear the Christ child, he referenced this kingdom. Listen to how he said it in Luke 1:32 and 33. Speaking of the child that Mary would give birth to, he said, He shall be great, and he shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Do you hear these very clear words of kingdom and reigning and sitting upon a throne? And in fact, because the prophets had been so clear about this, Every person in Israel understood this hope and Mary never questioned the kingdom that the angel was talking about. Her only question was, how am I going to have a baby? I'm a virgin. She didn't say kingdom, what kingdom do you mean? She knew exactly what he was speaking of. It's also true that when you read in the New Testament, As you read primarily, or particularly, I should say, through the Gospels, you read about this expectation of a kingdom that the disciples of Christ fully looked forward to. In fact, John the Baptist, when he came preaching, what was his message? Repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus preached the same message. In fact, when he picked up the mantle from John and he began to preach, that was his message as well, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They fully expected this kingdom. You might remember that the Gospel of Matthew records that um, the mother of James and John on one occasion came to Jesus because she expected him to establish a kingdom and she wanted her sons, to receive places of honor within the kingdom. And so she said, would you let my two sons, when you, when you bring in your kingdom, could it be that my sons, James and John, you know how wonderful they are, of course, may they sit on your right hand and on your left hand. She expected the kingdom. And she wanted her sons to be in that kingdom. Even on the cross, as Jesus was dying and he was flanked by two thieves, you remember that one of those thieves looked to Jesus before his death and he did not say, Lord, take me to heaven when I die. He said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And even in Acts chapter 1, not the well sometimes Acts is called the fifth gospel, but in Acts chapter 1 and verse number 6, after the resurrection of Jesus and just before his ascension, the disciples asked him this question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said, so well it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that God has put in his own power. For them, it was not a question of if the kingdom would come. It was simply a question of when the kingdom would come. So let me ask you the question. Are all of these multiplied promises, are all of these meticulously described descriptions of this kingdom, are all of these promises now void? Has God changed his mind about a kingdom? Has there been, do you think, some kind of replacement where maybe Israel and the promises made to them, they've been set aside and maybe those promises don't apply anymore and God somehow has changed directions and he's calling the church this new place where the kingdom will be only? What of all of these promises of a kingdom That God has made to Israel. Will he keep these promises? Well I just want to say to you unequivocally this morning. God is a promise keeper. Amen. And if he promises something. Then you can mark it down. He will keep his promise. And so what are we to understand about this kingdom? Well 2 Thessalonians is going to speak to us about it in chapter number 1. I want you to follow along as I read beginning in verse number three. 2 Thessalonians chapter one and verse three, Paul writes, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet or it's right, because your faith is growing exceedingly and your charity or your love uh, of every one of you all toward each other abounds, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and your faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is a manifest token or it is sure evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. Would you underline that in your Bible, verse number five, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer, seeing that it is a righteous thing with God to recompense or repay tribulation to them that trouble you, and to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Verse 8, In flaming fire, taking vengeance upon them that know not God, and them that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. This will happen, verse 10 says, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe in that day. And he says that you you, uh, will worship him in that day because you have believed our testimony or you have believed the gospel. So in verse number five, Paul talks about this kingdom. I asked you to underline it in verse five. This kingdom that's to come. But he tells us in verse number seven and verse 10 when this kingdom is going to come. In fact, the word when is in both of those verses. It is the kingdom of God which will come, verse seven, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven. And verse number 10 says it is the kingdom which shall come when he, Jesus, shall come to be glorified In his saints. So, the kingdom that that is spoken of in the Bible, the kingdom that will come, will come when Jesus is revealed from heaven, when he comes from heaven to earth. And I want to talk to you about this kingdom today. Now, let me begin by giving you a definition, a definition of the word kingdom. When the Bible talks about the kingdom of God, uh, the, the word that's translated kingdom uh, in your Bible uh, is, is the Greek word uh, basileia, and it means the extent of your realm, or of one's authority. Um, this is a word where we would talk about the, the, the length to which one's uh, kingdom, authority, or reign is extends we would kind of understand it like the old saying that a man is a man's home is his castle or his land or his home is his empire that on his property in his home he exercises reign and authority but beyond that he does not so when the bible talks about the kingdom of jesus it is talking about the extent to which the reign of jesus goes Now, when you think about the kingdom, I want you to think about it in three aspects. Jot these down, if you will. In the first place, I want you to think about the kingdom of God as a spiritual kingdom, a spiritual kingdom. That is, that the kingdom of God is operative in the world today. It exists in the world today. It is active in the world today and it exists within the church of Jesus. We who know Christ are living today in this world inside a spiritual kingdom. It's not a literal kingdom. It's not that we don't live in the, in the kingdom of God. We live in the United States of America. But within the United States of America, we are citizens of the kingdom of God, the spiritual kingdom operating in in the world today. Turn back about three pages to Colossians chapter one, and it'll help you to understand this if you'll mark verse number 13. Colossians 1.13 says this, speaking of God and his mercy, says uh, God who hath delivered us from the power of darkness. Uh, The word is exousia, from the authority, the controlling authority of darkness, that is of, of death and of hell itself, who hath delivered us from the the authority of the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. If you know Jesus as your Savior, you have been set free from the authority of hell, the authority of Satan, the authority of this world, and you now live under the authority of Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord that we've been delivered into his kingdom. Now again, we still live in a world that's a fallen world, But in this world, the kingdom of God is functional. It operates. Now, by the way, that means that when the body of Christ comes together, those of us who are in the kingdom, we assemble to worship our king. Do you understand? That's the purpose of our assembling. Now, other things happen when we assemble, but all of the things that happen when we assemble ultimately direct our hearts to worship the king. Which, by the way, and I know that, you know, I'm a pastor, so I'm maybe a little more attuned to this than a lot of people would be, but it's always bothered me a bit when Christian people can take or leave the worship gathering. When people claim to know Christ, but the gathering, the assembly of the saints, it's not that important to them. Yeah, they might come, yeah, they may not come. Because it says something about A, your understanding of why we come and B, your understanding of the worth of your king. If he is our king and every assembly is the assembly of his children to worship the king of our hearts, then we ought to assemble faithfully because he's worthy that we would worship him. Amen? I mean, can you imagine living in a king, an actual royal kingdom where you were called to worship your king? And for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, six weeks, a month, a year, you said, nah, I don't think I'll go, I'll go back one day. It's not that big a deal. Can you imagine the king calling you in and say, hey, can we talk? <laughs> Do you not appreciate my royal court? Do you not see worth in, in honoring your king? And yet we approach the worship of Jesus like this, so casually, very frequently. Well, he says that we worship or that we are in his kingdom. We assemble to worship the king. We dismiss to go and proclaim his kingdom. And all week long we proclaim his kingdom and then we come back to worship him, learn more of him, and then we go back out to proclaim his kingdom. And that's the reason that our mission and vision statement says we believe that Jesus came to build a church that would overpower the forces of hell, or the kingdom of hell, and enlarge the kingdom of God. And we envision being that church. So we gather to worship the king, we dismiss to go and enlarge his spiritual kingdom by proclaiming his gospel. The kingdom of God extends where people surrender to Christ and where he is their king. Now secondly, I want you to think about the kingdom of God in terms of a literal or earthly kingdom. The kingdom is operative today, but it's spiritual. But the Bible tells us that one day Jesus is coming again, and on that day he will establish his kingdom in a physical and a literal way. Let me read to you from Revelation chapter number 19, beginning in verse 11. Revelation 19 tells us about the return of of Jesus. Revelation 19, 11 says, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And he that sat upon him is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. And he has a name written that no man knew, but he himself. And he was clothed in a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the word of God. Now, let me ask you, do you know who's being described? Who's coming back from heaven on a white horse? Who is it? It's Jesus, right? He's the faithful and true witness. He is the one whose name is the word of God. Verse 14, the armies which are in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations. He shall rule them, rule the nations, with a rod of iron. He's treading the winepress and the fierceness Of the wrath of Almighty God. He hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written. Look at his name. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So, Revelation describes the day that Jesus will return as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, wearing many crowns, ruling over the nations in perfect righteousness. It is a literal, physical kingdom on the earth. And this is what Paul is discussing with us in Thessalonians and throughout the scriptures. And we're going to talk about it today. Now, there's a third aspect that I want you just to jot down that you ought to think about when you think about the kingdom of God, and that is the eternal kingdom, which really in one sense, is not a, it's not a different kingdom, but it's just this eternal aspect of the kingdom of God. It's described in Revelation 21 and 22. Uh, it's what we would call heaven, if you will, eternally, but it's this new heaven and new earth. So what are we to think about this kingdom, this fact that one day Jesus will come and establish a kingdom on the earth? What will it be like and how should we live in light of the fact that it's coming? Well, let's begin in 2 Thessalonians 1 by starting really where Paul starts and that has to do with what life is like on the earth in the absence of our king. What life is like on the earth in the absence of our king. By the way, when you read the parables of Jesus, it's not unusual for him to say, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he will describe the kingdom of heaven as being like a rich man who has an empire, a kingdom, if you will, a home, a a, a vineyard, other sorts of illustrations, but a, a man who has a place and he goes away and he entrusts his kingdom into the hands of his servants until the day that he returns. Well, we live in the earth today, in a kingdom, and our king is not present on the earth. He's in heaven, and he is absent from the earth. Now, he says in this passage, if you look at 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse number 3, he's bragging on these these Christians. He says in verse number 3, we are bound to thank God always for you, brothers, as is meets right, because your faith is growing exceedingly. He's he's celebrating them. He's thanking God for them because their faith is maturing. He goes on in verse number three to say, not only is your faith maturing, but your love is deepening and abounding. And not only are you growing in faith and you're growing in love, but also he says, you're being faithful. You're demonstrating great perseverance. This is verse number four where he talks about your faith and your endurance. You're being faithful. I wonder, who would thank God for those things in your life? Have you ever given that, given that consideration? If somebody looked at your life, could they say, man, I thank God for you. I'm so grateful for what God's doing in your life. I see you growing in your faith. You're maturing in your walk with the Lord. You're demonstrating such deep love for God's people and for the Lord and for, the, for those around you and you just you're, you're you're enduring in the faith and you're remaining faithful could could anybody say that about us well that's what Paul is saying about his friends in Thessalonica in fact he says i brag about you i'm i'm bragging about you to all of the churches as i go about but notice this he says in verses 3 and 4 that their spiritual gains listen carefully there's spiritual gains of maturing faith and deepening love and perseverance and faithfulness. These spiritual gains are being received or had or gained in the context of real-world suffering and hardship. It's what he says in verses number four and five, that you're gaining these things even though you're being persecuted. Do you see it in verse number four? That in all of your persecutions and your tribulations... The word persecuted means exactly what you would think. It means to be pursued and attacked for your faith. Tribulations means your troubles, your anguish, to be in distress. Your sufferings, verse number five, your suffering for the kingdom. You're literally enduring pain in this world. And loved ones, let this principle educate us that suffering and persecution And hardship in this fallen world ought to produce within us a growing faith, a deepening love, and a more solid endurance in the things of God. Our thinking is so backwards in that. It seems so counterintuitive. We want to run from hardships. We want to seek out ease. But it's in the suffering and the difficulty that God grows our faith deeper and stronger. He says, I'm so proud of the way that you're growing in this world where our king is absent. Now, the Thessalonians in particular were suffering primarily because of persecution. They were being attacked, oppressed because of their faith. I mean, they were losing. They weren't just unpopular. They were losing possessions and family and relationships and in some cases, their lives for their faith in Jesus. But the truth is, In a world where Jesus is absent, everybody's gonna suffer. It's true, isn't it? In a world where Jesus is absent, there's cancer. There is. In a world where Jesus is absent, there's suicide. In a world where Jesus is absent, there's abuse and neglect. In a world where Jesus is absent, there's tragic accidents that happen. In a world where Jesus is absent, there's floods and there's crime and there's hate and there's human trafficking and there's death. And all of these things are present in this world Despite the fact that the kingdom of God is here in an invisible way, in a spiritual way, but in this world, all of those things exist because Jesus is not present. But in John 16, verse number 33, Jesus said, In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer in the world, be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. How did he overcome the world? The word overcome means to gain the victory, to establish yourself as the victor. How did Jesus come into a fallen world filled with all of the suffering that I've just described, how did he overcome it? By plunging into the world and establishing his kingdom and ruling in that kingdom by his Holy Spirit so that from the world, listen, worldlings could flee into the kingdom, into the ark of safety in Christ in a world flooded with sin and a world flooded with suffering. I am frequently asked the question in some form or variation, if if God is good, or if God even exists, how could there be such suffering in the world? And the answer, while it's not easy, it's rather simple. And it simply is that God created the human family, with a will, with a free will, with the ability to choose, and we chose sin. And if you say, well, I didn't choose sin, Adam did. It was his fault. Well, he chose sin, but we choose sin as well. We did, we do, and we will. And the result of sin is the curse upon this world and the fallenness in this world. And that brings about the suffering. But the good news of the gospel is that Christ came into this suffering world and overcame it by his death and resurrection and establishing his kingdom. And now we invite the sufferers in the world to come and find hope in the kingdom of God. That is the gospel. So he gave us this kingdom in this world that we might proclaim the hope This hope of life and restoration in a relationship with God through the gospel. But that's not the end of the kingdom because he has promised to come again. And the Bible tells us that when he comes again, he will bring the kingdom of God literally to the earth. Write it down. We've talked about this life in this world in the absence of the king. What will life be like on earth when the king shall come? What will it be like when the king returns. I think you would agree with me, wouldn't you? That when Jesus comes to the earth again, that's gonna change everything. Don't you agree? You talk about the, the geopolitical reset. <laughs> this will strip any reset ever imagined because everything will change. But one of the things that the Bible is crystal clear about, and I want you to hear me particularly if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you need to hear what I'm getting ready to tell you, what the Bible says. That when Jesus comes again, one of the things that he tells us will happen is that he will judge every unbeliever. He will judge every unbeliever. You'll see this in verse number eight and verse number 10. We'll talk about what the judgment looks like in a second, but first of all, I want you to notice the contrast that Paul draws, the difference between a believer a believer and an unbeliever. As you may say, well, I don't. am I a believer? I'm not sure if I'm a believer or not. I mean, I kind of believe some of these things, but what, what is the difference between those who are unbelievers who will be judged and those who are believers uh, who will not be judged for our sins because Christ has forgiven us? Well, notice what he says in verse number 10. He says, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that... Believe Now, many of you know that the word believe simply means confident trust. It is to put my confident trust in Christ. When you came into church this morning, you put your confident trust in the seat that you're now sitting in. You probably didn't give it a second thought. You walked in. You didn't assess its structure. You didn't crawl under and look at it to make sure that there were no loose screws and the legs were wobbly. You simply came in and with absolute confidence, you just plopped yourself down in complete trust that you were not going to fall to the floor. Well, that simple illustration is a good illustration of what it means to believe in Christ. It is to put my trust, it's not a head knowledge, but it is to put my trust completely in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I'm resting in him. So to be a believer means to, to put my confident trust in him. Look at what he says in verse number eight, though. These who will be judged. He says, he is coming in flaming fire to take vengeance on them. Here's the description, that know not God. Those that do not know God. The word know here means to acknowledge To acknowledge God and to respond rightly with the right kind of fear and reverence or honor is to acknowledge his existence. Romans chapter one says that the problem with sinners is that we know that God exists because he has revealed himself to us in creation, but we suppress that knowledge and we rather worship the creature more than worshiping him. We want our way more than we want his way. We want to determine our lives more than we want him to. So we take what we know of him, we say, I'm not going to believe that, and we suppress it. To not know God is to not acknowledge him and give him the right worship, the right response. He goes on in verse number eight to say, not only those that do not know God, but then those who do not obey the gospel. The word obey means to listen to and to respond to by opening up. If you could see it as an illustration, to open the door. So what's the difference? Who will be judged and who won't? Here it is. Believers acknowledge and confidently welcome Christ into their lives, while unbelievers disregard Christ and refuse to listen to him. That's the difference. And if you want to know, will I be judged or am I a believer, have you willingly received, acknowledged God and received Christ? by obeying his gospel. Well, he says that those who are unbelievers will be judged when Christ returns. Verse number six, he says he will repay them for the trouble they've caused his people. speaking specifically of the persecutors there. But in verse number eight, he says that he will execute judgment on them that do not know God. It is a righteous judgment. In very much the same way a judge in a courtroom hands down a righteous judgment, a life in prison or 20 years to 40 years or, or the death penalty or whatever it is. It is a righteous judgment based on the law and the conviction of the criminal. In the same way, God has a law. He is the judge. We are the criminals. And if we stand in his court, it's not a temper tantrum. He's not mean. He's not unkind. He's not taking some sort of retribution that's unholy. He's simply doing what is right and just in judgment. And what is that judgment? He goes on in verse number eight to tell us plainly. It is that they are separated. Look at verse number eight. That they are separated, verse number nine rather, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the presence of his glory. What is, what is hell? Well, for all of the descriptions in the Bible of hell, and there are many of them that are fearful, fearsome, a lake of fire, Worm is not quenched and the fire never goes out. Place of outer darkness. For all of those descriptors, here's what I know. I know that hell is eternal separation from God. It is eternal death, eternal separation from God. And So he says that when he comes to bring his kingdom, he will judge every unbeliever. Secondly, he then promises us in verses 7 and 10 that he will establish a kingdom of rest for every believer. Do you see it in verse number seven? And he will recompense trouble to those who trouble you and he will give rest to those of you who are troubled. He will come and as he is revealed from heaven, he will establish his kingdom and he will establish a kingdom of rest. And verse number 10 tells us that in that kingdom, he will be worshiped and glorified by all who know him. I don't have the time to turn. You can read it later. Revelation chapter number 20 describes this kingdom for us as a millennial kingdom, a thousand-year kingdom. Six times in Revelation 20, actually in about the first eight or 10 verses, it describes this kingdom as a 1,000-year kingdom on the earth. We call it the millennial reign. And Revelation 20 tells us of its character. The reason it will be such a wonderful kingdom of rest is because Satan will be bound for 1,000 years and will go out and deceive no one anymore. Imagine what a wonderful day that will be when he is bound. Micah tells us that in that kingdom Jesus will rule from Jerusalem and that the nations will ascend to Jerusalem to learn of him and to give him worship. Isaiah tells us that it will be a kingdom of perfect righteousness and peace and safety. Habakkuk tells us that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord in the same way that the waters now cover the sea. This kingdom that Jesus is coming to establish will be in every sense of the word a beautiful return, a restoration of what existed in the Garden of Eden before sin and before the fall of man. So in his absence, there's cancer, and there's war, and there's crime, and there's floods, and there's hate, and there's neglect, and abuse, and suicide, and all those things I've described. But loved ones, hear me. If you're listening, shout amen. In his presence, none of those things can exist. And he will bring that kingdom, and by his grace, we will be a part of it. Some of you are familiar with with C.S. Lewis, and specifically the Chronicles of Narnia. Lewis wrote these chronicles in order to communicate the truths of the kingdom in a story like way that even a child could understand. And so he created in this, in this chronicle of Narnia this land of Narnia that had a king named Aslan. But Aslan was away, he had gone away. And now the, the, the land of Narnia was under the rule of the White Witch. And the white witch had frozen everything and made everything icy cold. In fact, Narnia is described as being a place where it's always winter but never Christmas. Can you imagine such a place? And all of the believers in Aslan living in Narnia have one hope, and it's that Aslan will come again to Narnia one day. And one of the characters named Mr. Beaver gives this testimony. He says, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter will meet its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. This was the hope of Narnia and the hope of the world is that one day Jesus is coming to bring a kingdom to the earth. And don't you want to be a part of that kingdom? Don't you want to live forever with Christ? Those who will be judged on that day, the unbelievers, are those who have said, I will not acknowledge who God is and I will not listen to Christ and receive him. Those will be judged with eternal death. And I don't want you to experience that. I want you to know his kingdom and to know this wonderful king.